human-produced anthropogenic biochars can mimic this process of forming inertinite and creating an actual, you know, fossilized carbon that will stay in the soil for millions of years. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. For this week, the review comes from JKH415. Get your folks, need some names and companies. Just kidding. Love you, JKH. JKH says, great show. Chris is an excellent interviewer, and I especially appreciate how he intermingles questions about business and personal habits. As a fellow meditator, I've seen the benefits this provides in the hectic lives we lead. My guest today is Jason Adabudu, CEO of Climate Robotics. Climate Robotics is a team of roboticists, soil scientists, and AI researchers developing advanced robotics to help sequester carbon via biochar, capitalizing on the fact that the Earth's soils contain more than 14 times more carbon dioxide than the atmosphere. Jason is a serial entrepreneur and investor interested in new applications of artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics, sensors, and trustless computing to large industries such as agriculture, mining, logistics, energy, health, and of course, climate change mitigation. In this episode, we talked about his current company's ties back to his Gates Foundation-funded biochar company from 2006, how they're tackling the 50% of total costs involved in transporting biochar from the site of biomass to the agricultural field, why biochar is a permanent carbon sequestration solution despite common misperceptions, the price per ton of various carbon removal solutions, crop outperformance when the soil is enhanced with biochar, what it means when we say name it and you can tame it, and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoyed and please give Jason and Climate Robotics a shout out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Thanks. Jason Aramburu, co-founder and CEO of Climate Robotics. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Chris. So we're going to start at a weird place because I like to do my homework on you wonderful souls who uh, become guinea pigs and, and join as guests here. Let's go back to your undergrad at Princeton, and I, I saw that you were a part of an astrobiology club, which I didn't know about really until my son years ago in high school was like, oh, I think I want to be an astrobiologist. I was like, okay, those, those sci-fi books are, are shaping you, molding you. What, what yeah. led to your interest and what is that before we get into the, the meat of your climate tech startup, Jason? So astrobiology, you know, fundamentally, it, it's the search for life in the universe and, you know, that said, it's, it's not just kind of looking in telescopes aimlessly to, you know, find someone or find someone out there. It, you know, in today's world, fundamentally, astrobiology means 
looking at very extreme environments on planet Earth and <clears throat> identifying life, typically microorganisms, and characterizing life that can survive in those environments. So astrobiologists, um, one of my mentors at Princeton, who's now deceased, Tullus Onstott, was one of the really leading astrobiologists in the world. He would actually descend you know, miles below the surface of the earth into gold mines in Africa to study bacteria that could actually live inside the mine and survive down there. So he was really looking at, you know, extreme environments. So that's, that's fundamentally, you know, what astrobiology is. I got into it because Tullus was a professor at Princeton and he developed a, a seminar for undergrads on astrobiology where we actually, you know, took a trip to Yellowstone in the middle of the winter and studied uh, microorganisms that live in the, um, you know, in the geological uh, geysers and pools and things. And, you know, we actually ended up identifying and characterizing uh, on that trip uh, a previously unknown uh, microorganism. So really interesting stuff. And, you know, at the time, you couldn't really major in astrobiology so we the, the members of that class formed a club the astrobiology club and you know just just kind of went from there obviously i didn't go into that career field but you know it really kind of spoke to a lot of my research and personal interests around um you know soil nutrient cycling uh Etc. And and some of my friends from the class actually have you know did end up getting their PhDs in astrobiology and you know now work at NASA and and have have continued on in that space. Fascinating. Okay, so sticking with the past for a second, you started a company I believe called Rechar, maybe yeah. like in '06 or so. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that starting a company around biochar you know, almost 20 years ago was not a normal thing to do. And of course, this is going to come to the present day here in a second, but what led you to start that company and run it for some number of years so long ago? Yeah. Well, so when I was a student after the astrobiology work, I actually went and worked as a field scientist. My, my university had a joint appointment with the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. And I went and worked as a field scientist for several months there. And that's where I first learned about biochar because it's, uh, it's actually an indigenous technology that farmers in the Amazon and in Central America have been using for, uh, for thousands of years. And I found it very compelling, very interesting. It seemed like something that you know, could benefit people beyond just you know, indigenous farmers in that region. And this was really, you know, very early in the modern resurgence of, of biochar. It was just being studied as a climate change mitigation technology. I thought it was really fascinating from the soil and nutrient cycling side, you know, what it can actually do to weathered and acidic soils. And so I said, you know, this is a field where I would like to focus a significant amount of my energy. And so I went at it from kind of the nonprofit side initially because at the time, you know, there were not carbon credits. There wasn't a way to monetize carbon removal or climate tech businesses. And so 
I went at it from the nonprofit side, secured some grant funding from you know different sources, and started trying to understand you know what was needed to go from the very simple indigenous rudimentary technology to something that was more scalable. And so, you know, recruited some friends and we ended up designing a very low cost, but, but highly effective biochar kiln design. Because with biochar, people think that, oh, it's just, you know, any charcoal is biochar. And that is completely false. You couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> and to make biochar that is that is stable in the soil, that is actually going to help fight climate change, and that is good for the soil as opposed to neutral or negative to the soil, you have to produce it under very specific thermal conditions. And so uh, we designed a very low-cost, naturally aspirated kiln, You know, requires no energy, uh, no electricity to run, that could make high-quality biochar uh, out in the field and reach thousands of farmers and again, this was, you know, really before anybody had heard of biochar. And, you know, I had always wanted to bring the technology to more of a commercial farming agricultural space in the developed world. And, you know, it, it really took, I mean, it, it, it literally took almost two decades for the industry to get to a point where that was even remotely possible. And that's, you know, that that's sort of where we are today. And I think it's true that you're being extra humble and saying, oh, we had some donors. <laughs> I believe the Gates Foundation was was one of your donors, yes? That is correct. Yeah, right. that is correct. Okay. See, part of my job here as a podcast host is to brag on folks when they can't brag on themselves. So anyway, <laughs> number one, we, uh, mission accomplished so far. Okay, let's, let's rank. Let's, well, so two, two things here. You talked about the specific thermal conditions. And I, I hope we're going to come to maybe not the next question, but eventually today on our chat, a new study talking about yeah. a temperature that's required to help permanent the carbon storages for biochar, which I think is pretty, pretty game changing, although maybe not, maybe not based on your, your history in the space. But first, climate robotics. Give us, give us the pitch, Jason. What is, what is this company all about? Yeah. So uh, climate robotics, we are developing mobile biochar production systems for uh, commercial agriculture. So today, if, if you're a farmer and you want to buy biochar, you are fairly limited in where you can get that biochar. It, it's typically going to be made from wood, first of all, and it's going to be made in one of about 60 bioenergy plants uh, around the US. And it's going to cost you anywhere, you know, from three, four hundred dollars a ton all the way up to a thousand dollars a ton. And that's that's excluding the cost of transportation. You know, what we find is up to 50% of the end cost to uh, the user of, of biochar is just getting the char to the farm or getting the feedstock to the pyrolyzer. And so my co-founder, uh, Morgan Williams, and I, we recognized very early on that, you know, uh, and, and he's been he's been active in the biochar industry about as long as I have. Um, and we recognized, you know, this, this reality of the industry that 
the cost just greatly exceeded the agronomic benefit of the char and and were largely due to things like you know transportation. And so what we set out to do with Climate Robotics is really develop a distributed production methodology because the farms that are using this biochar, like a corn farm, for instance, a corn farm in Iowa is going to make two to four metric tons of what's called residue per acre per year. That residue, if, you know, if you're growing corn, it's things like the husk of the corn, the cob, uh, the stalk. All that residue, you know, in many cases, it's just left in the field to decompose. Some farmers actually still burn it. Some farmers till it under, but any way you look at it, the carbon in that feedstock is not utilized. It's it's just allowed to decompose and return to the atmosphere. And so there's this really abundant resource available with, you know, with kind of no end use, nothing, nothing you can do with it. And and that's because it's very expensive to you know harvest it, bale it, move it around. It's very bulky, and you know ultimately you can't do much with corn stover either. It's it's not there's not enough protein in it that you can feed it to animals. So really, very few uses. So we said, well, you know, can we use this feedstock that's already there to make biochar and then just use the biochar on the farm so that we totally eliminate the transportation and. Morgan and I started doing our research and, you know, yes, it is theoretically possible to make biochar from corn stover, but there are numerous technical challenges to actually doing that. I mean, number one, corn stover is not like wood. It's very difficult to move through a continuous process, uh, particularly a high temperature process. It's very technically challenging just to, you know, reliably convey a material like corn stover through any kind of continuous system. Then number two, to produce a biochar from corn stover that is stable in the soil, that's high quality enough, you have to operate at much higher temperatures than you would with other feedstocks. And doing that efficiently, again, is is very non-trivial. So, you know, that's a big challenge. And then finally, you have to have the ability to reliably produce a high quality feedstock because the, the, the other challenge of corn stover, it's not, it's not a homogenous feedstock. It's multiple different parts of the plant kind of blended together. And so figuring out how to produce a consistent uniform product from a mixed feedstock, you know, was very challenging. So, so we said, well, let's, you know, Let's use our brains. We've been in this space a long time. How can we design a pyrolysis system that that can actually work in this application? And we started looking and we realized, okay, nobody's actually doing this. There is no pyrolysis system, pyrolyzer you can buy today that will process a bale of corn stover. You know, despite what anyone says, it does not exist. And we said, all right, that's good. <laughs> you know, either that means it's impossible or it's so hard that nobody else but us is going to be able to do this, and um, and that's that's really you know how the how the company started. Yeah, I love the way you and your co-founder frame that, right? Because another conclusion is this is a bad idea, <laughs> versus it's a wonderful yeah. outcome. It's a wonderful realization that no one else can or is or is doing this, right? Yeah, I've heard people say, and maybe you could respond to this that they would prefer, you know, uh, tech risk 
think, you know, physics versus market risk or product market fit risk, right? If you can solve when you all solve what you're going to solve, there's clearly a need for it, right? I mean, you talk about 50% of total or end use cost for biochar, I think, being transporting biomass to or from these bioenergy plants. Holy cow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, not made it perfectly half, but almost immediately, right? Absolutely. You know, you, you get the nail on the head. I mean, it's it's pretty much impossible to build a business selling something people don't want, but it is possible to build a business, you know, that if there's technical risk, you know, oftentimes with enough time and work, you can tackle that. And then it just becomes a question of optimizing, you know, what do I, how much time and how much uh, resources do I need to solve this problem? And and can I get that in a time frame that's commercially relevant? So let's let's make sure listeners are clear on what biochar is, because we've all heard it. You just earlier said all charcoal is certainly not biochar. So let's let's break it down. Yeah. So biochar is it is a pure mineral form of carbon that is derived from biomass waste. So any living biomass, plant material, wood, algae, contains significant quantities of biological carbon. When that biomass dies, when the plant is harvested and the waste is left in the field, the biomass is decomposed. So in the case of corn stover on the farm, it takes about one to two years to break down. And about 98% of the carbon in that biomass returns to the atmosphere in the form of CO2 and methane. Some, you know, a, a couple of percentage points of it stay in the soil as what's called fixed carbon, but most of it returns to the atmosphere. What we do is we capture that waste and we heat that waste to very high temperatures, around 800 degrees centigrade. And we do it in a restricted oxygen environment. So the material actually gets red hot but there's no oxygen available, so it doesn't burn. And what happens under those conditions is the carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen separate. Pyrolysis literally means to break apart with fire. So we liberate the hydrogen and the oxygen. That forms a combustible gas that we actually burn to to fuel the process. And we're left with very high purity C, very high purity mineral carbon. And because we have driven off the hydrogen and the oxygen, it it's very difficult to break down that carbon and to decompose that carbon any further. So biochar is fundamentally, it is an inert form of mineral carbon that was derived from a biomass waste. And you referenced the specific degrees in this paralysis process that you will use of 800 degrees Celsius. Maybe this is a good point to tie in the the new research, which I thought I saw that it referenced you need to be above maybe 500 or 600 degrees Celsius, but maybe whatever the temperature is, maybe just kind of interpret this latest research to what I believe is showing Maybe it isn't in every single instance, but in, in that particular kind of sample size or what that sites studied, that biochar led to uh, much greater permanence than folks had um, had believed, let's say, to date. You know? Yeah. 
Well, that paper is really making the rounds right now. And it's interesting because for folks in the biochar community, it's really saying what we all already knew. Mm. We knew that biochar was permanent. Um, this is not the first paper to say that, but it's certainly the highest profile and it's gotten the most attention. You know, biochar has been an interesting technology in the CDR space because it's been studied more than any other CDR technology. There have been over 30,000 peer-reviewed studies of biochar and its impact. And, you know, despite that, it's also probably the most scrutinized and the most challenged CDR technology. And one of the areas where biochar is, is extensively challenged is around the permanence. I think everyone in the industry would agree, in the CDR industry would probably agree that, you know, biochar has 100 to 1,000 years of permanence. That's been kind of the standard. But going beyond that, there have been a lot of groups that are reluctant to acknowledge that. And, you know, I think many are approaching it from a scientific perspective well saying well you know we really need to study this others i think are approaching it from more of a capitalist perspective saying well i'm selling a different competing technology so you know so i, I you know i think it's important to challenge and vet these ideas but i always look where people's incentives lie you know you know charlie munger had a very famous quote about incentives you know show me the incentives i'll show you the outcome i think i'm paraphrasing but you know, so biochar has always been kind of challenged on that front. And this paper, which which summarized quite a bit of, um, there, there have been several papers leading up to this work. It looked at it from a different perspective. This paper used a suite of tests that are uh, commonly used in actually the, the coal industry and in geophysics to grade the quality of coal in the ground. Because the, the process that forms coal is in many ways analogous to the process of making biochar. Uh, you're applying heat, pressure, and time to biomass, and you end up with you know a, a, a very stable mineral carbon product. And so this particular test actually looks at the reflectance of the biochar. So it's an optical test. And um, what they found was if the biochar is produced at high temperatures, which, you know, again, this is something that practitioners in the space knew intuitively, you know, if the biochar is made at a high temperature, it is actually permanent in the soil for millions of years. And so going far beyond, you know, where we even expected it to come out. And so, so this is, this is really exciting research because it, sort of, you know, fundamentally changes how we think about biochar and its permanence. You know, now, if what was demonstrated in the paper, you know, is in fact verifiable and replicable, biochar can now compete with geophysical storage, uh, you know, direct air capture in terms of, uh, in terms of permanence. And... I'm going to put a pin in, the, in one question, which is kind of price per ton for CDR through biochar. But before we get to that one, how should we think about the reasons that biochar and the carbon in biochar is permanent? But in, two thoughts come to mind. One would be just that when you have the elemental carbon, it just loves being right where it is. It's just so chemically stable and happy. Yeah. And the other could be 
I don't know, that say bacteria perhaps or fungus that would break down organic material, like the Corostover in its original state, they weren't, they didn't evolve to, you know, kind of consume, metabolize, <laughs> mineralize carbon. Yeah. Oh, is it those, is it other reasons that like from a, like a common sense perspective that would explain the permanence of carbon in biochar? Yeah. So when biochar is applied to the soil, there are biological sources of decomposition and or, or biotic, you know, sources and, and abiotic sources. So when we make a biochar, it is not a hundred percent pure mineral carbon. That's you know, that's impossible. And it's not like an activated carbon. It's not um, uh, going to be you know 99% pure carbon. It, it tends to be 50 to 80% carbon, depending on your feedstock and how you process it. So you are going to have what's called a labile fraction in your biochar. The labile fraction is the, the fraction of that carbon that can be decomposed biologically. So when you apply it to the soil, within the first few years, you are going to lose a percentage of your of your mass uh, to decomposition in the soil. We know that that has been studied tens of thousands of times, and it is actually quite predictable, that rate. You can actually predict it very precisely. But the slower decomposing fraction, the stable fraction of the carbon, you know, that was really the unknown. It was believed that that was stable, you know, for a hundred to a thousand years. Beyond that, very difficult to say. And that's really the fraction that is subject to abiotic decomposition, kind of the the action of the soil, for instance, weathering it. And what this paper showed is that that stable fraction is it is actually what's called in the industry inertinite, and that actually refers to fossilized char. So it is actually, what we have found based on this paper is that that material is actually, you know, it's not just stable, it, it is in fact fossilized carbon now. So, and this is one of the fundamental carbon removal pathways on the planet. The two most impactful carbon removal, naturally occurring carbon removal pathways on this planet are the weathering of rocks. So the breaking down of rocks into bicarbonate and the formation of inertinite in the soil. And so what we have found based on this paper is that human-produced anthropogenic biochars can mimic this process of forming inertinite and creating an actual you know, fossilized carbon that will stay in the soil for millions of years. I'm with you. Super helpful. Let's go back to the question I pinned earlier, which is how should we think about price per ton of carbon removal through biochar versus you mentioned some other some other options out there think you know direct air capture rock weathering etc yeah well so right now i mean the carbon removal space is obviously an, an incredibly new industry and it's really exciting and when you have a, a brand new industry you're going to have you know quite a bit of of price volatility the, the industry is very much still in price discovery what we're seeing though which is interesting is that biochar has really become kind of you know, the workhorse of the industry. Over 80% of delivered durable CDR tons have been in the form of biochar. So the volume of carbon removal that's being facilitated via this pathway is, is you know, 
more than all others combined today. So I think that's something that's that's number one, just really exciting. Today, you know, on the open market, a ton of CO2 removal or a carbon removal unit, as people are starting to to discuss in the industry, costs anywhere from one hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, so per ton, that's that's sort of the going market rate. I think the the index price is around one hundred and thirty today per ton. You compare that to other technologies. So the enhanced weathering technologies, those tend to be around $300 to probably $500 a ton. Direct air capture could be anywhere from $500 to, uh, we've seen you know $2,500 a ton today. So really quite a wide range of, of prices today. And, and those prices are largely driven by the cost of production. Those other technologies still require, you know, fairly massive amounts of energy to deliver. Um, with with direct air capture, you need energy to draw the CO two down from the atmosphere. I mean, CO two is only four to five hundred parts per million in the atmosphere, so it just requires you simply have to move a massive volume of air to collect enough CO two to have any meaningful impact. And you know, with other technologies like rock weathering, you know, you are still having to transport very large volumes of rock dust, of of mine tailings and waste, and you have to crush them to a very small particle size in order to facilitate the enhanced weathering. And then, you know, you've got to get it from a mine or a quarry out to a farm. So those technologies still require fairly significant inputs of energy to actually facilitate the carbon removal. And, and as a result, they remain fairly expensive. Yeah, for sure. It's early days, right? With with scale, uh, with reduced tech risk and so forth, all, you know, all these costs come down. And I know for sure, you know, us at, at, at least wearing wearing my TerraSet hat, you know, believe this is kind of a portfolio approach, right? To get there, all different kinds of solutions, tech, some engineering, some some natural to get us to the the target removal, maybe we we haven't quite covered a more obvious question, which is how does climate robotics make money? Yeah, so we make money two ways at climate robotics. So, and this is really you know one of the reasons I find biochar incredibly compelling, and part of it is just that biochar started before carbon removal credits were a thing before there was a market for this. So those of us in the biochar industry really had to find another way to make money doing this. And that's why biochar is great because it it has proven demonstrable agronomic benefit. The most thorough meta studies of biochar, which you know evaluate hundreds of independent field trials, each of thousands of acres each over multiple, multiple seasons. I mean, like I said, this has been studied immensely. They show a grand mean crop yield improvement of around 16% after applying biochar to the soil. So uh, biochar is good for the soil. It's good for the farm. It reduces, it uh, increases water retention, it increases nutrient retention, and it ultimately increases ROI to the farmer. So at Climate Robotics, we sell the biochar 
to the farmer. We sell biochar production as a service. So we charge the farmer a per acre fee in now in 46 of the 50 U.S. states, there is funding available from the USDA to cover the cost to the farmer of biochar production. So we work with farmers who qualify to access that funding and provide them technical support to apply for and access the funding. And then if successful, you know, we take a percentage of that as our service fee. So we generate revenue from the farmers. On the other side, every ton of biochar that we're applying to the soil is generating carbon removal credit. So we measure and verify that carbon removal. And then we work with third-party certifiers to certify it, to issue a carbon removal credit. And then we sell that carbon removal credit to end users, buyers, brokers, et cetera, who uh, want to reduce their carbon footprint. And the, the carbon removal revenue, does that, does that go directly to climate robotics? Is there is there a kind of rev shear or is the farmer already taken care of essentially by you all facilitating biochar as a service with, with Department of Ag uh, funding? So the, the carbon revenue goes to climate robotics. The farmer is getting the biochar as a service at a vastly reduced cost. They are getting it cheaper than if they were to buy biochar on the open market. They're getting it cheaper than if they were to buy chemical soil amendments and chemical inputs that biochar replaces. So the carbon removal funding is used to reduce the cost to the farmer. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. I think that I could keep asking you questions about about your business model and the, and the the science for a couple more hours. However, <laughs> we don't we don't have that time. Let's uh, let's switch from talking about climate robotics to talking about you, Jason. Sure. But first, there's a brief message from our sponsors. Just kidding. We still don't take any sponsors. But did you know that 100,000 plus CEOs belong to CEO peer groups? And if that makes you feel a little FOMO, and if you're a CEO or founder, then you're in luck. I have the privilege of leading North America's top peer group community for growth stage CEOs, founders, and investors in climate tech, clean energy, and sustainability. Today's members are creating billions of dollars of market value and millions of tons of greenhouse gas reductions. With our monthly group meetings, annual retreats, and one-on-one executive coaching calls, our members help each other, most importantly, help each other boost revenue, impact, capital raised, clarity, confidence, work-life balance, and team effectiveness. If this sounds interesting, please go to entrepreneursforimpact.com and join the waiting list today. Tell us something that you strongly believe in that ideally was true before you started this business, but influences how you're building the company or the culture. Yeah, I guess one thing that I believe firmly is that Success is pretty fundamentally tied to the amount of, of input. 
that you you as the entrepreneur or the founder put in or the team member. I think that most startups that fail, it's not because, you know, there was some existential reason. It was just because they kind of ran out of steam or they got tired or got burnt out and couldn't do it anymore. So I fundamentally believe that, you know, the the harder you work and the deeper you can focus on something, the the greater the impact. And, you know, they say that like startups are a 10 year journey. Well, doing a startup in biochar is really it's a lifetime journey. I mean, this is not like building an app where you can just build it and sell it. I mean, some of the folks that have, you know, that, that we've been lucky enough to partner with, when we ask them why they partner with us, they say, well, you guys aren't software engineers who decided to work in climate six months ago. You know, you guys have been literally doing this for 20 years. And carbon removal technology, it's it's really, you know, more analogous to something like compost than something like building an app. I mean, it it just takes time to do the fundamental research and science. So, you know, I believe that success in this field is is it's really going to be a direct result of the amount of work and time that's put in. It's not necessarily going to be resolved by some quick, new, hot innovation. Mm. Well, that that leads to another question, uh, not in order, as listeners will know here, which is you're, you're alluding to, in some ways, permanence, uh, persistence, endurance, energy levels, staying power, which begs this question, which is, what are some habits or routines, Jason, that keep you healthy, sane, and focused building yeah. bionics? Yeah. Um, so I am a big believer in um, high-intensity interval training. Um, yeah, maybe. So, yeah. 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 But to me, that's the most effective way to keep your body and your mind healthy. You know, it, it's just kind of like a, a reset. I think when you're building something new, kind of the the self-doubt and the voice in the head is often the biggest obstacle. And um, there was an interview with with uh, Djokovic, the tennis player recently, where he was talking about this. And, you know, he said that he's not always the best. He's not always the most talented player. He's not always the phys- physically the strongest or even the best tennis player, but his superpower is when he gets into that mode of self-doubt, he just he he recognizes it, he accepts it, and then he's able to exit that mode quickly, he says. And he can get back into a mode of focus and execution. And yeah, I find, you know, doing really intense exercise is just a great way to kind of get out of that that, you know, mentality. Yeah, there's an expression which I like a lot, not everyone does, but if you can name it, you can tame it. Right. So if you can identify it's kind of mindfulness in a way, right? Like, oh, I'm aware that I'm in a really shitty mood right now. That's better than not being aware of it. Maybe I'm a, it's at least a little easier to change to change. <laughs> yeah, trajectory. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I I completely, completely agree with that and completely believe that. Um I'm also People who know me will will know I'm a huge evangelist for the sauna. Actually, I believe in saunaing. Uh, I think there's a lot of evidence that 
shows it's it's great for your health, it's great for life extension, you know, reducing kind of various causes of morbidity and mortality. And it's just another way to kind of focus your mind and um, minimize those like unhelpful cycles. Well, I'm I'm delighted that you said that because that's where I'm headed after our podcast. Is my, <laughs> my uh, you know, three times a week, uh, you know, workout plus SADA. Amazing. Yep. Yep. You're right. Like I, whether, you know, like I, I think reading, you know, Peter Atia's work or the kind of Tony Robbins, Peter Diamandis life force book, mm-hmm. when that, that will finish, finish study, right. It'd be pretty, I would encourage folks to check out the finish study on saunas. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty exactly. accurate are pretty staggering. And I don't know about you, but when I, when I tell folks, they're like, oh, well, how hot is it? I say, well, I think at the, at the Y, it's about 175 degrees. They're like, wait, shouldn't you die? No, 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 no. We're, we're way more resilient than that. I mean, it's not like for an hour, 20, right. 20 minutes is pretty nice, but. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's just a little bit of external stress and it, you know, totally, totally changes your body and your mind. Absolutely. Well, what one fun fact here or one fun perspective, I was describing the use of sodas as a longevity, you know, health span improvement. Yeah. And I was mentioning the Finnish study. And one of my um, women friends said, well, wait, was the study just about men? And I said, I think it was. She said, well, you know why their longevity increased is because they're hanging out in sodas all the time with their dudes. And the women are like rotting the house, you know, taking care of that. <laughs> Neurotypically, <laughs> but anyway, could That's be fair. Yeah. yeah, could be. Yeah, um, little inequity uh, still today. Yeah, yeah. That it, that would be a hard one to do, like a a double blind study on. I mean, I don't know how you would do that with science. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I think that I think she made a great point. I also think yeah. the the science around you know heat shock proteins and the rest to exactly to be pretty good. Absolutely. Okay, so imagine this, Jason. You're 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 talking to a class of I don't know, university students, undergrad, grad, you name it. What kind of advice might you share for them to build a a happier, more productive, impactful career in this space or related? Yeah, well, I think to you know, looking at the 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 climate tech space as a whole, you know, what's needed right now. It's a bit different skill set than you know, kind of the the software or traditional tech industry. With with climate tech, you know, we really need chemical engineers, for instance, uh, people who have experience designing industrial processes and plants and scaling plants. We need mechanical engineers, so we need people who can design in CAD, who can use SolidWorks or Inventor. We need electrical engineers who can design and develop the control systems for these carbon removal technologies. So definitely, you know, a heavy kind of technical need, less focused on software and more on um, building and scaling physical systems. There's also a very significant need for scientists in this sector. Uh, One of the big challenges with all carbon removal is, is the monitoring and verification or the, the, the MRV. And that's really the role of you know, in, in biochar, for instance, that's the role of soil scientists to deploy the testing to to monitor and track the permanence of the carbon in the soil. And then, you know, 
fundamentally, we we also need more traditional business professionals. You know, operations, for instance, these are uh, carbon removal businesses tend to be very ops heavy. You know, you need operators for your plants. Uh, so we need professionals who can build, lead, and train people to operate these systems. And then traditional sales as well, sales and business development. Um, you know, in in many cases, because this is such a new industry, you're kind of creating the playbook for how to sell the credits or the biochar or whatever your end product is. And so, you know, we really need uh, folks who can build relationships with, you know, buyers who are often, you know, large corporations or governments or NGOs, you know, very large organizations and build and 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 make a sales pitch, a successful sales pitch to those organizations. So, so I would say, you know, climate tech really needs a wide variety of skills right now. And, you know, there's the potential and the need for, you know, engineers, scientists, as well as, you know, more non-technical folks right now. Yep. Maybe as a last question, tell us some, uh, some books or podcasts you think listeners would benefit from. Yeah. So one, I guess my favorite book series of all time, it's the, the Dune books by Frank Herbert. And I've read them all, including many of the ones written by his son. And if you've read any of the Dune universe, it's really, it's more like a religious text in many ways. And it is a story uh, about a, a universe that is completely dependent on a single resource, you know, in the Dune universe is called spice. And it's really, it's an analog for, you know, oil in our case. And um, it's just a, it, it, it's a really fascinating story, incredibly rich. And I think it just has, you know, for this energy transition space that we're in, there's just a lot, a lot to learn from the Dune books. It also really, you know, one of the, one of the key themes of of the series is the power of the mind and the power of the will. And I really do think that in entrepreneurship, that's one of the most important things you have because you can really do a lot. You can accomplish a lot if you are totally committed to it. And if your mind is totally committed to doing it. And, um, you know, that's, that's really one of the, I think one of the core themes of the Dune series is like, you know, what you can accomplish if your mind is completely focused on on a task or a goal. Uh, so I'm a big fan. I've read I've read them multiple times, and you know I I can't get enough. Well, I, I love when guests recommend books that have never been recommended before, and this counts. <laughs> yeah. Okay. How you've made it relevant as almost an analogy of that finite and and finite resource to which they were overly dependent being relevant to our energy transition. I love the, Absolutely. Focus, the focus on kind of, um, well, focus period, but also the commitment to uh, to the cause. Hey, listen, we're unfortunately out of time. I think we're like in the first inning of this conversation. But anyway, <laughs> Jason, we're, we're rooting for your all success at Climate Robotics. Thank you. Folks to check you out. Thank you, Chris. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. This was great. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, then join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com. 
or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all y'all. Take care.